Hello, this is Doing Theology and Thinking Mission. My name is Werner, and I am joined by my two co-hosts. Jackson. And Carrie. Great to be with you, Jackson and Carrie, today. Uh, We are discussing uh, an article today that uh, you wrote, Jackson, back in 2017, I believe this was published. Is that correct? Uh. Yeah, I wrote it in 17 and got published in 18. Okay, great. And this article is entitled, Have Theologians No Sense of Shame? How the Bible Reconciles Objective and Subjective Shame. And it was published in the Gospel Coalition's online academic journal called Themelios. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. And uh, tell us why you wrote this article. Well, funny enough, I wrote it out of frustration because I kept getting people uh, objecting to things I was writing and saying, this guy doesn't understand what shame is. Shame is actually this and shame is like that. And and people were objecting to things I was writing for different reasons. And what they were doing is confusing different types of shame. And finally, I just got frustrated one day and I said, okay, I have to write something right now this week. And I just shoved everything to the side and wrote this this article, I don't know, a matter of like maybe two days and I edited it another two days and then I submitted it and it was all within a week because I had been have, loading up all these arguments in my head going, ah, if I could just write one answer to all of this, then maybe I can take away some of these misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to clarify some things about honor and shame, especially in light of scripture. Yes. So I think we've addressed this in the past a little bit in the podcast already, that there are a lot of confusing notions and we're talking past each other. What are some of the confusing things, Carrie, that you've seen in this honor conversation, honor shame conversation? Uh, So many. But I think especially working around this understanding of shame and defining what it means, because we've got these cultural assumptions about what shame is. We've got kind of the psychological understanding of what shame is, and then this biblical understanding of what shame is. And so people are, are that's where you said, Werner, people are talking past each other because we're not really defining our terms well, I think. Right. So we're coming from different assumptions when we have this conversation mm-hmm. a lot of times, and it, it generates uh, confusion maybe and uh, controversy. And so we're trying to clear up some things with this article. Jackson. And I I just got to say, before we move further, when I read this article, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is bedrock to the whole honor-shame conversation, because it it does such a good job of clarifying biblical views about honor-shame and the different categories. And I think what's most one of the things that was so impressive to me is I think you cite about 150 different scriptures. I actually counted, mm. <laughs> counted them, <laughs> brother, and uh, so I got very involved in the article myself. And uh, so let's let's go forward. Um, how do you define three types of of shame uh, in the Bible? That's one of your opening. Uh, salvos here in the article is you you classify shame in three distinct ways. So share with us what what that's all about, Jackson. Well, let me begin with the background that could bring us to that. I, everybody's familiar with Brene Brown, and the thinking here is you know this is a psychological aspect of of shame that people are familiar with. But if you read anthropology or sociology, you have things like uh, honor killings or uh, chivalry and. In, in the Middle Evil Ages, so forth, 
that seemed like a whole different type of dynamic. And so immediately I recognize that there's two types, psychological and a social shame. But then when you go to the Bible, you do see this psychological and social shame, but then you see this other kind of shame that is really hard to classify, um, like where God talks about putting people to shame uh, or talks about them in their shame, but it's really ambiguous. They don't seem to have any kind of, you know, emotional struggle, like a psychological mm -hmm. issue. And it doesn't seem to necessarily be social. Uh, and so I, I created this third category in terms of the way I think about this is a, a sacred shame. So there's psychological, social, and sacred shame. Yeah, sacred shame. I mean, that, when I read that in the article, I thought this is important. Yeah. This adds a third classification to the whole conversation, and it makes sense of verses like everyone who trusts in him shall not be put to shame. I mean, that's not psychological shame. It's not social shame. It's a different level of shame. It's, it's, it's being in a place of shame in relationship to God. Yeah, and that was one of my big motivations in writing the article was if we can't understand what shame is and it's multifaceted nature— then when we read honor shame language in the Bible, we're not going to know what to do with it. And we're going to either skip over it because it doesn't seem to make sense, it doesn't fit our definitions, or we're simply just going to impose some idea, some meaning, as if God is, for example, just shaming us like some overzealous parent or something of that nature. And so I wanted us to interpret the Bible better, which also meant I had to think of a definition for shame that encompasses all three types of shame. This, I, I think, Werner, what you were mentioning too, that this idea of we shall not be put to shame. And I think of any of our brothers and sisters who are currently living in a country that persecutes Christians. So if we're not looking at this from a big, broad, sacred shame being kind of its, its own entity, if you will, its own definition, then we look at their lives and we go, but you are being socially shamed. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think it's easy to look at scripture and, or maybe not easy, but we look at it, it has to apply to all nations for all times, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we look at that as psychological shame, well, then all of our brothers and sisters who are currently being jailed or killed or losing jobs because they are believers of Jesus, they are being shamed. So that this conversation about sacred shame really is crucial so that we can we can accurately interpret scripture like that otherwise we go well god's just a liar cuz look at my life you know and that's that's not what that's not what we're getting I at. think that's really helpful Carrie because the conversation is really apt for the global church yeah. and for cultures and social environments where christians are going through extreme hardship and persecution mm -hmm. and uh, exclusion so, and I think to some extent, this is also true for the church in the West. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thanks for, thanks for adding that. Now, now, Jackson, another exploration that I found so important here has to do with the title. You, you say how the Bible reconciles objective and subjective shame. Can you uh, introduce that whole concept to us? Yeah, and let me take it one step back to make sure we're clear on what we're talking about shame because defining our terms here is really critical. So I talked about the three types of shame, but I define shame as the fear, pain, or state 
of being devalued according to some criteria of worth. In the article, I say being regarded unworthy of acceptance in social relationships, because most of the time it's social in nature or in relationship, even if it's the uh, the other that we have in, in our mind. Okay, and that seems to encompass all all the dynamics of shame here. So then, if we have once we have that, we have to think through how are these three facets different and. Everybody seems to say, well, fear or guilt is objective, but shame is subjective. And so I just wanted to start exploring, well, what is this? What do people mean by subjective and objective? How does shame fit into this? And so I would argue that shame is both subjective and objective. And by that, I mean, this subjective refers to what originates from inside you or is, is exists mm-hmm. inside you. So uh, emotions, feelings, uh, perspectives objective is is the thing that exists outside of you Mm -hmm. so the walls around us are objectively there other people's comments they they are real in the world they're not just merely something being created within me and so i can subjectively feel shame if i you know feel like the Brene brown psychological sense of i'm unworthy i'm no good so forth but i can experience objective shame when people treat me in a dishonorable way in a shameful way so in other words when the shame originates from within me that's more subjective but when that shame or exclusion originates outside of me that would be considered objective absolutely and people tend to confuse subjective and objective with absolute and relative. Oh, really? Okay. What do you mean by that? This is where a lot of confusion comes in because people use objective and absolute as if they're synonyms. They Well, they'll talk about objective truth or absolute truth or absolute right and wrong or objective right and wrong. Okay. They'll use those synonymously, but those are not the same. Absolute refers to the ultimate, supreme. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, absolute value or as relative is speaking of relative to some standard or some situation or some relationship. And in some respect, you could say absolute truth or absolute right and wrong is relative to God. You know, but we use the word absolute to say, hey, this is you know relative to all other things. Yeah. And what you're saying is that absolute truth exists whether our whether or not I feel it or know it. Yeah. It exists outside of my brain, outside of my person. But that's not the same thing as this talk about objective shame, because that's talking about what's outside of us. So I could experience objective shame by virtue of the community treating me a certain way, okay, because it's originating outside of me. Mm -hmm. But another type of objective shame is that which may come from God, say, in judgment or, you know, something of that nature. Like, you know, you may see the judgment of of a city or whatnot. But uh, that's not the same thing as saying absolute. So that's an important thing for people to clarify uh, is absolute and objective, not the same thing. Okay. Well, thank you. So this conversation about objective and subjective gets a little bit thorny and controversial when we talk about sin and guilt versus sin and shame, because the conventional view holds that sin and guilt is objective, whereas sin and shame is merely subjective. So how would you how would you say that relates, uh, Carrie? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going back to our definition, the three different types of shame, right? When we're saying sin and shame is 
more subjective, I think it's because we are assuming shame is merely psychological or social. Don't you think? Yeah, sure, sure. Now, this gets controversial, Jackson, because there are important people in the theological conversation who are who have said explicitly shame is merely subjective. Yeah. Guilt, sin and guilt is the main problem. Shame is a secondary problem. Can you give us some examples about yeah, that? Yeah, I've heard uh, people uh, like Pastor Mark Devers make this comment explicitly. Uh, Tim Chalice in, um, in a September 20, uh, 2015 post. I just have the quote here. He said this in his blog post. Here is how I differentiate between them, guilt and shame. He says, guilt is the objective reality that I have committed an offense or a crime. Shame is the subjective experience of feeling humiliation or distress because of what I've done. Mm -hmm. God has made us in such a way that sin incurs guilt and guilt generates shame. Okay. Okay. Now, that statement is loaded with half-truths. No way. (laughs) There's nothing in what he affirmed that I would disagree with. It's when you leave it at merely those affirmations without rounding out the picture, it gives a real big misimpression. So are you saying that what he's saying is true, but it's not the whole truth? Or perhaps uh, we can say it this way. The overall testimony of Scripture is much more nuanced. It's much it's uh, it goes beyond just those uh, just that explanation. Yes, all the above of what you said, because. It's one thing where people say, well, you can't say everything all the time. Well, sure, but there are situations where if you leave it out, then you start misrepresenting things. And a half-truth becomes a half-falsehood, not intentionally, but just because of the impression that it leaves. Yeah, okay. So Tim Challies is, is widely respected, and we, of course, consider him a brother. And, and people who take this position— we don't look down upon them as brothers in Christ or Not sisters all, yeah. in Christ. Uh, however, what we're submitting is that there is a testimony from the Word of God mm-hmm. that suggests that there is more to this story, right? Right. Can you share something from Scripture that shows that shame exists as a sacred thing and that it is objective, not merely subjective? Well, let me— lay that out. So we've talked about objective shame and, uh, and subjective shame. And then guilt is also objective and subjective. Objective guilt is like what Charlie says, that it's something that I've actually done, a crime, an offense, something I've done wrong. But you can also subjectively feel shame. Okay. I can have guilty feelings, whether or not I've done something wrong or not. You yeah. meant you can also subjectively feel guilt. Right. Right. You said feel shame, but. Oh, my bad. Yeah. 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 So in other words, for both shame and guilt, you could both feel both and you could objectively have both. And so I could feel ashamed and I could be shameful, be worthy of shame, be treated shamefully. So that's Mm -hmm. objective and subjective. And same thing with guilt. I could be guilty, but I could also feel guilty regardless of what reality is. Mm -hmm. So that would be my response to uh, Tim Challies. Now, you spoke of wanting some some objective examples, right? Yeah, okay. some scriptures yeah. that would indicate that shame can be an objective reality. Sure. Uh, one, for example, would be when you think about Jesus in Hebrews 12, 
uh, talking about him despising the shame of the cross. Mm. Okay. Uh, so there's a, there's a shame that's associated with the public shaming that goes with that, right? Mm. Uh, there's also, uh, speaking of Romans 10, 10 11, uh, where he quotes from Isaiah, where it talks about all who don't believe in him will not be, all who believe in him will not be put to shame. Yeah, that's such a key verse right there because it's not only a quote from Isaiah that Paul makes in Romans 10, but it's also a quote in Romans chapter 9. Mm-hmm. It's also a quote in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. They're quoting this scripture about salvation, mm. about trusting in, in God, right? Yeah. All who trust in him shall not be put to shame. I mean, there's a clear sense that this is shame that exists, that begins outside of the uh, of the person or whoever is being uh, right, yeah. uh, described here. And Daniel, in Daniel 12, 2, says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Mm. See, it's a, it's a state. It's not merely a psychological feeling. It's something that is a shameful condition, part of whatever I feel like. Yeah. Hey, guys. I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization. Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. So I have some questions to these two, the you know, Romans 10 and the Daniel passage that you just referred to. So are we saying that eternal shame could be equated with eternal damnation? And if so, then what is the actual difference between eternal shame and eternal guilt? Well, one, when you talk about this, this, there's two different questions. So yes, condemnation, eternal condemnation and eternal shame would be the same. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when you said, how is that different from eternal guilt? Well, guilt is the thing that's going, if we're talking about objective guilt, is the thing that's going to result in the condemnation, in that judgment. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that what you're, I think what you might mean is eternal punishment. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm thinking in, you know, in growing up, I very much learned we are guilty, then you're forgiven, then you're not guilty anymore. There were definitive markations in our salvation. And so I guess when I think of eternal shame, you know, where is that? If we had kind of a spectrum, are we looking at this idea of eternal shame being, is that because we never entered into forgiveness? I guess I'm trying to parse out eternal shame versus. Yes, those who are put to shame, those who enter into this eternal shame and contempt are in a state of judgment. Uh, condemnation, whatever word you want to use. And that is their shame. 
yeah, that is they're they are in a state of being in uh, being in shame. I think you can also add they're they're in a place of exclusion. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. because these are all interrelated terms, and so and to kind of put it string the ideas together, when we sin, we do something that is shameful. We bring dishonor to God. Okay, therefore we incur shame. Upon ourselves, we become worthy of disgrace and exclusion. And those who do not repent, uh, the Bible presents them as going to a state of everlasting contempt and shame, being put to shame, ultimately. Yeah. Now, Jackson, in your article, you make the statement, I think this is relative to Romans 10, or it might be Romans 15, but you make the statement, it, the subject matter is justification. Mm. And you say that's Romans nine and ten. It's Romans ten, twelve, and nine thirty. Okay, nine, nine something like that. Okay, but you, yeah, okay, Romans ten. And so the statement you make in your article is: the shame that is avoided is as objective as the justification that is gained. Mm -hmm. I have to say, when I read that sentence, it floored me. I mean, I thought this is powerful. Uh, can you can you just talk about what that sentence means to you, how you came up with that in the context of that passage? Yeah, absolutely. Paul, twice in a matter of 11 verses, and I have the reference here, 933, Romans 933 and Romans uh, 10, verse 11, he twice quotes the exact same verse from Isaiah, saying that everyone who believes in him, that is Christ, will not be put to shame. And especially in chapter 10, it's in parallel with being justified and ultimately salvation. The string of thought is there's a parallel here that not being put to shame parallels being justified, ultimately being saved. And if we want to say that justification is an objective reality brought about by God, and salvation is outside of us, not merely some feeling inside, then we have to say that not being put to shame is an objective reality that is being avoided by those who have faith. It's an objective reality whose source is in God. Yep. It's outside of the individual. It's outside of the community that's being put to shame. It is objective. Absolutely. And the positive way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 2 is that those who are righteous, those who are justified, uh, those who please the Lord, receive glory and honor and immortality. That's chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 10. Romans 2, uh, 6 and 7 says, He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Then in verse 10, it says that there is glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Okay, so I didn't hear the word shame. So where do you see sacred shame? Well, here, here it's the converse. Okay, okay. And so whereas those who don't have faith are put to shame, to not be put to shame in Paul's way of thinking is to get glory and honor. Okay. So there's, there's a binary here. Okay. Glory and honor on one end, shame on the other. So in other words, we are avoiding objective shame, but gaining objective 
honor. Glory and honor. That's another reason why you know we're talking about an objective reality, not merely a psychological one because of the contrast. Yeah, yeah. So this is actually brings me to another question is that so when we're looking at verses similar to what, you know, what you just read there is that how should we be looking for either objective or subjective understandings of shame when we're reading a verse? I think it's very easy to go. I think we're all going to have tendencies. Oh, this is clearly psychological shame. Um, So, yeah. How do we know when we're reading a passage? how we should be looking at it. Sacred shame, psychological shame, social shame. Well, there's certainly going to be times where there's some ambiguity. Yeah. All right. The first question you have to ask is, what does this seem to be originating out of? Uh, is it an emotional feeling they seem to be expressing or does it speak to something about the condition that they're in or that's being imposed, inflicted on them? Mm. Okay. So that that's your beginning level questions. One passage I like to go to is in Ezra 9 you actually see in one passage a subjective and objective shame put together. This is where Ezra is is speaking and he says to God, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So here, I suggest this is a subjective shame. And one of the reasons why I say that is because of the phrasing that goes with it, talking about blushing to lift his face. Mm. And why? It's because of the subjective reality of having inequity and guilt. Inequity and guilt. Okay. Just uh, the next verse. Wait, after- a, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You said the subjective reality of having iniquity and guilt. Couldn't that guilt there be? Did I say subjective? I meant to say objective. Objective. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Because I was thinking this is objective. Yes, 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 yes. He has subjective, sorry. Uh, He has subjective shame because of an objective reality. That is having iniquity and guilt. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. That's all I need to do is add more confusion. (laughs) Uh, All right. My mouth gets in front of me way too often. All right. In the next verse, it says... And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Well, in context, what's the sequence here? Given into the hand of the kings, they're in captivity, plundering, and to utter shame. It's a whole state of credola, of, of, of uh, suffering and of negative consequences that they are suffering uh, objectively. And so the objective reality of sin and guilt, uh, iniquity and guilt, leads to the subjective experience and the objective experience of shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. I think another Old Testament passage that has powerful honor-shame connotations is the long chapter called uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. In, in this chapter, which is uh, fully 63 verses, there is a narrative of basically the story of God and his covenant people, Israel. And it seems like the whole story, the whole narrative here is in uh, is using honor, shame language and honor, shame contexts, uh, uh, concepts. And I think it's really powerful that talks about redemption. It talks about where they came from. And I will just uh, share at the very, let's see, 
in verse 53, it says, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. This is also an example of objective shame, is it not? Absolutely. No question. And you see this kind of language a lot in the prophets. Uh, Hosea chapter four, the Lord says, I will change their glory into shame. Hmm. And it says, their rulers dearly love shame. Well, think about it. They're not dearly loving the psychological condition where they feel bad about themselves. Okay. Shame is here a virtual functional synonym for their shameful lifestyle behaviors and actions. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's an objective element to this. Yes. Yes. And I like to just, I'll just, in, in the last verse, I want to just add this, the last verse of, of Ezekiel 16, the last two verses, I will establish my covenant with you. Here God is giving them hope. And you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. That shame that's right there, it's not psychological shame. It's not social shame. It's shame in relationship to their covenant God. Yes. And that's the key distinction between these different types of shame is what is the standard or the criteria of worth being used? So sacred shame, the standard or criteria is God himself. Yeah. And I think it's quite profound that here in Israel's scriptures, prophet Ezekiel says, on behalf of God, when I atone for all that you have done, because of your shame, when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Yeah, there's a parallel there in terms of the disgraceful bad things they've done and that being their shame. Yeah. God God is atoning for shame. I think that's quite significant. Yeah, and 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 now people might be alarmed atone for their psychological state. No, 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 no. Let's remember what we're saying. A shame what's being atoned for are the things that are shameful. You know, there, there's a similar idea in, I think it's First Peter, where it talks about being, fr talking about those things which are frightful or frightening. Uh, and so it takes the, the idea of fear and emotion and objectifies it and saying something worthy of being afraid, those things that are frightful, right? And the same thing here, that's essentially what's going on is a lot of times our shame or can be those things which are, that we do that are worthy of shame. There's one more verse and this is in the Old Testament, Jackson, which I'd, I'd like for us to just talk about. And that is Romans 2.23. Yeah. We don't have the word shame there, but in Romans 2.23 and 24, we have powerful concepts of shame. And I'd like for us to talk about this. Here's the verse. Paul is uh, writing to the Jews here in this passage. And he says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law for as it is written the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you what are the honor shame dynamics going on in this verse uh wow <laughs> a lot here this was a major verse in my thinking the development of my uh of my theology and whatnot 
So first off here, the single verb in that first sentence is not the breaking of laws. You know, if, when I read that sentence, that first phrase is those of you who break the laws, right? That's what it says there. You who boast in the law, dishonor yeah, God yes, by yes. breaking the law. You who boast in the law. Okay, that is the subject. You dishonor God. Dishonor is the, the, the verb in the sentence. The whole breaking of the law is a prepositional phrase. It's In other words, it's one of those things that is not part of the core sentence. It's explaining the, the way in which they are dishonoring God. You know, uh, Israel was not following the law, and so therefore they were dishonoring him. The key problem with sin here is the dishonoring of God, the bringing of, of shame upon God's name. And you know that that's what Paul's getting at, and that's his emphasis here is because of what he says in the immediate passage in verse 24. He says, for, in other words, because, and then he quotes from Isaiah, as is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. One of those words to say he brought shame upon, brought disgrace upon God's name. People are dishonoring God, seeing him as lacking worth because of their behavior and what God has had to do for Israel in back in the passage of Isaiah where he's had to send them off in exile. And so, in short, the key idea here is what is sin is to bring dishonor to God. And the consequence there is that shame is being brought upon God's name. That is, his name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. To me, that's about as clear as a passage as you can get, making clear what the main idea behind sin is, uh, and that guilt here, or breaking the law, is just one way in which that happens. So can we say then that sin can be defined as dishonoring God? That's what I would say. <laughs> I, I cannot think of a more broad, encompassing way of, of speaking of it. Well, in this verse, you know, if I remember correctly, Romans 2, 23 and 24, you know, that's one of the pit stops on the Romans road, if I remember correctly. Was it not 223? No, it's 323, all of sin uh, and all short of the glory of God. So it's a similar idea in terms of defining sin with respect to shame and honor. But the, the point in Romans 323, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, usually when that's presented as one of the basic principles of an evangelistic gospel presentation. Mm -hmm. The point there is more that everybody's a sinner. It's, right. The emphasis is on the all. It's not on lacking, falling, yeah. lacking glory or yeah. falling short of God's glory. Yeah. And I think also reminding us that, yeah, we've, we've all, we're all guilty. You know, I I remember, you know, working through the Romans Road as I was a teenager and then even teaching it. And it doesn't, you know, again, these are not bad, horrible things to pull out of Romans. But I think what was void for me was this idea that what it was doing to God. Mm. You know, I you know, we all heard the analogies. You're in a courtroom and you're guilty, but then Jesus comes and he takes your sentence. Mm -hmm. And so it felt very it. I came away feeling there was it was kind of a cold ruling by some judge mm -hmm. and I could kind of, you know, brush off my feet and go on my merry way. And I think that Jackson is what has been so powerful about understanding 
honor shame in just the book of Romans, which I know we'll get to more of that in another episode. But this idea that this is what breaking the law was doing to our relationship with God. Yeah. And, you know, this idea that sin being defined as dishonoring God Mm -hmm. is powerfully seen in the story of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. In the story of the prodigal son, we have a spiral that's a descending spiral of ever-increasing shame uh, and dishonor towards the father. It is much less breaking a legal code as it is dishonoring a father who loves you and who has given you his inheritance. You know, he gave the young son an inheritance. Moreover, we see the older son in the prodigal son story also dishonoring the father, not by all of this rebellious behavior, but by his, might we say, his religious, you know, legalism. Uh, you know, I've never done these things that the other guy, that my my brother did, but he never knew the father's, neither did he ever know the father's love. And he remained outside of the big banquet. And uh, so it's, it's really a description of this idea that sin can be defined as dishonoring God. Yeah. Now, we are not excluding the fact that sin is also guilt. Right. right. It's right. just, but it's one of the metaphors that the Bible uses. It uses a whole lot of metaphors to describe sin. Yeah. One thing I'd point, about, point out about that Romans 3.23 passage, all have fallen short or lack the glory of God, is that most all commentators agree that it's something of a restatement or recapitulation of what Paul said back in Romans 1, you know, verses 18 to the end. And there, Paul is far more explicit in his shame and dishonor language about people behaving shamefully and uh, being given over to their shame and whatnot. There's actually zero legal language at all in Romans 1. Okay, So uh, those two passages are mutually interpretive. To put it maybe in a relational uh, sense as well, because it's lacking the glory of God, and is I didn't know my my biological father until just a short time ago, and I remember looking at some pictures of him when he was younger, and I could see a resemblance. And I remember saying to my newfound sister, uh, I was just like, how amazed I was because I said, you know what, I've never looked like someone before. I didn't resemble my mom. I didn't resemble my stepdad. I've never resembled anybody. And I was just stunned at the fact that I looked like somebody finally. And in a sense, that's what it is when we become believers, followers of Christ, and he grants us honor and glory that all of a sudden we start looking like our Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. And we can look back and go, oh, I lacked that. And there was a sense of exclusion and uh, having a distance, not knowing our Father. And then all of a sudden when we get to know our Father, we go, ah, this is who I'm supposed to be looking like. And this is where the family resemblance comes in. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's beautiful. Now, I, I have one more related question, and that this relates to the global church. When we understand or express or define sin, at least in part, as being the dishonoring of God the Father or of God the Creator, how is that helpful in communicating the gospel in other cultural contexts? 
For example, in places where sin has been described as crime, mm -hmm. is it an advantage to communicate sin not as crime, but as dishonoring God the Father? Yeah, I've used this example several times before where I basically try to communicate the idea of, of like, a, like I mentioned before, it's like spitting in your father's face is what I would say when I was in China. So that people realize there's a dishonoring of uh, the father or kids in China naturally want to please their parents and live up to their, their, their parents' ambition and dreams for them. And when they fall short of that, they feel shame if they haven't lived up to honoring the family name and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so those are a few examples where people get it at a kind of a visceral level. You know, when people sometimes in China, when I would try to convey the idea that the gospel of the gospel that, you know, it's pronouncing Jesus King. I would sometimes say it's kind of like saying Jesus chairman and, you know, trying to make a parallel between yeah. the chairman of the party and then a king in terms of this ultimate supreme power. And all of a sudden, oh, OK, now I get what you're referring to when you're talking about what it means to follow or not follow. There's absolute allegiance that's being demanded by this king or chairman. And so therefore, sin is this sense of like dishonoring, devaluing, not caring about them, you know. Well, I'd like to begin wrapping up our conversation here. And one of the key ideas for me in this conversation, which has been stimulated by your article, Jackson, Have Theologians No Sense of Shame? That's a wonderful title. <laughs> <laughs> if sin and guilt and sin and shame are both objective, and subjective in Scripture, then it opens the door to the theological possibility that the gospel cure addresses both sin guilt and sin shame. What are the implications of that? Let's start with you, Carrie. Yeah, what are the implications in, uh, you know, 60 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> or. <clears throat> What do you think are the implications, Jackson, of that? And then we'll turn to you, uh, Carrie, for your thoughts and comments. Well, I think it just in brief, we need to start rewriting some systematic theology textbooks. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you saying there? You want to rewrite or you think some systematic theology textbooks need to be rewritten? Or at least we need an expanded edition of several that do not incorporate honor and shame into various doctrinal concepts. You know, like, for example, when we talk about justification and its close proximity and explanation with shame and not put to shame. So what you're referring to then is the fact that in the majority of systematic theology textbooks, justification is defined in almost exclusive uh, judicial language. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And so what you're and, saying and you could say go doctrine after doctrine after doctrine and see no honor and shame language uh, as a way of explaining those doctrines. So there was a few years ago on Twitter where I did this series of all these doctrines of the faith, but I explained it in tweetable short ways in terms of honor and shame. And so I mean, we just need to do a whole lot of rethinking once we see that shame is more than a psychological phenomenon, it's more than a cultural phenomenon that it's a, there's a, a sacred phenomenon 
and all of them are important and they all play a different role in understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Carrie. Well, I, you know, as I think through it, I think it impacts what stories we tell in different places. So for example, I think of the hemorrhaging woman and her interactions with Jesus. And when you have on this lens of honor, shame dynamics, all, all the categories, um, that story is very easy to read as just, oh, it's cool. Jesus healed this lady who's been bleeding for so long. But then if you continue to read and you understand the ways in which he was restoring her by declaring her clean publicly and what was happening with, you know, maybe the religious leaders that were listening and the community that was listening and what was Jesus saying about his authority and all of these things, it becomes more than just a story about healing. It becomes this beautiful story of restoration from her shame on all the levels. Mm -hmm. And I think what beautiful good news that is to people in any culture who find themselves living in a place where they're experiencing social shame on a daily basis. I mean, that is truly good news. So I think it will impact as we think of the global church, yeah, the stories that we're choosing to tell as we look at the gospel narrative. Yeah, that's that's terrific. Really terrific. Yeah, I think it helps us with so many stories in scripture where we see uncleanness, Jesus interacting with uncleanness. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the hemorrhaging woman because of her condition physically, she was excluded from the community. She was considered unclean. The same could be said of the leper who falls at Jesus' feet and says, Mm -hmm. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I mean, he was He was an outsider. No one wanted to be with him or touch him or relate to him. And when we think of Jesus on the cross, it says in Hebrews 1, 3, that he made purification for sins. Mm -hmm. That is an elegant statement about the atonement of Christ, where he is addressing that which makes us unclean, whether that's sin whether that's being excluded socially in some way relative to social sins and systemic sins. I mean, there is something grand and uh, large and cosmic about the atonement that includes addressing our sin and guilt, but certainly also goes beyond just the issue of objective guilt. Jackson, last words. I would urge people this week, to jump into their Bibles and look up user concordance if you need to look up words like shame. I'll go online if you need to. If your your concordance may not even list shame, but go online and just start wrestling with some of these texts. Look up words like disgrace, honor, glory, uh, defile, and just start reflecting and meditating on the significance of of those words and how they should be shaping our theology. And so we can understand sin and salvation in broader terms. And with that, thanks for joining us today for Doing Theology Thinking Mission. Hope to have you check in with us next time.